Hello, and welcome to Live Culture. I'm your host, Martha Willette Lewis. Live Culture is a monthly program about art and culture, and this month I'm delighted to have as my guest Andy Versoza. Andy, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me clearly? Perfectly. Thank you. Thank you. That sounds great. Um, excuse me. So, Andy, you are the executive director of the Stanley Whitman House, which is in Farmington, and it's a 300-year-old museum house or house museum. Um, sure. So Stanley Whitman House, the, the actual historic house, is 300 years as of December 31st, 2020. But we've been a museum since 1935, so wow. we're coming up on our 86th year. Congratulations. That's, that's amazing. So yeah. how did you celebrate it? It's a little bit difficult right now with COVID. Um, what did you do in well, honor of that, that many years? So what we did is we decided to do what most of the world is doing, and we decided to go digital. Mm -hmm. And what I had done is we planned to have uh, a symposium earlier in the year. And because it was canceled, because we cannot gather together, mm -hmm. we had these presentations uh, recorded, video recorded, in the historic house. And the presenters read their papers, and then we were able to include uh, images uh, in the, the videos. And we put them up on YouTube, and we premiered them uh, on December 31st, 2020, the day that the house would turn 300. So I thought it was pretty fitting during this time of COVID-19 or the coronavirus pandemic to uh, do uh, our presentations about the historic house virtually. Well, and, and there are, frankly, not very many other options, right? I mean, you could have done something outside, but in December, that's not terribly practical in Connecticut, although we did have a warm December. Um, but the advantage, I guess, of doing things digitally, it's a lot more work, but and it feels, you know, a little more stilted. It's not the same thing, but you, you get a, a wider audience. You can get an international audience. We can, and, and I think that you may have seen the Mary Barnes Society presentations because we had another anniversary mm -hmm. recently, last week on Monday, January 25th, would have been the I was 358. There. <laughs> yes, you were, you were on the panel, so it would have been the 358th anniversary of the hanging of Mary Barnes, who was a resident of Farmington, accused uh, and hanged in Hartford on Gallows Hill, and we were able to do a series of presentations about the Connecticut witch trials by having people that are engaged in the fields. We had one historic, historic novelist, mm -hmm. we had another actor, and we had a person who manages the Connecticut Witch Memorial Facebook page. So yeah. we were able to present different perspectives on that day digitally, again, premiering them on YouTube, and uh, I thought that that's a fitting way of trying to keep things going because nobody yeah, would do. Yeah, you want to keep it pacey. Exactly, and and so you know it's it's a lot more involved, obviously, because it is. It's a lot you more work. To, yeah. um, you, you have to plan the, the the video recording sessions. You have to meet and talk about what the expectations are. And then, of course, you have to do the production uh, work around getting it prepared to put up on YouTube. So all of this is a 
is a big learning curve yeah. for a little museum like the Stanley Whitman House. And, and when you say a little museum, how many people are at the Stanley Whitman House? So we have, at this moment, unfilled positions. So mm -hmm. we're without a collections manager slash associate curator. Mm -hmm. We're without um, uh, an education coordinator right now, a weekend, weekend programs person, et cetera. So because I knew at the time of budgeting last year that we would be going through a time where we wouldn't know what was happening to the coronavirus, um, I decided not to fill the positions. And it's basically just myself, mm -hmm. the executive director, uh, my assistant, um, who is the associate um, uh, manager of advancement. And then we also have, um, we have a bookkeeper. We have mm -hmm. a cleaning uh, janitorial person. We also have a maintenance grounds person. Mm -hmm. And then we have a series of different engagements with volunteers like with the Mary Barnes Society, our mm -hmm. Dooryard Garden Society, uh, people that do tours that are docents mm -hmm. that still were giving tours outside last year. That's great. Program. So you guys are doing yeah, an awful lot with a very kind of bare-bones staff. I mean, it's impressive. You've yeah. got a lot going on. I wanted to go back to the, to the witch event. Um, sure. Because you, you didn't mention one of the things that I thought was really impressive, which was a, a sort of graphic novel uh, um, of, of the Mary Barnes trial. And I thought that was a yes. quite compelling way to get people sort of activated in the history of this. And it's a history that not a lot of people know about. And then the other thing was at the event, I learned that the witches – the I'm not going to call them the witches. The, the, the people who were hanged who were or, or, or were accused of being witches um, were not given proper burials, and they still don't have a, a burial, burial markers or a monument for them collectively or individually. There's sort of nothing, right? So let's, let's break that down. Let me talk first about John Jennison, mm -hmm. who's a comic book illustrator in New York City. That was cool. So, that was really cool. Yes. So... So one of the great things about being a person of my advanced age, just kidding, um, but being a person who, who has had interns in the past and past employees and, and they've gone on and, and done great things, mm -hmm. you stay in touch with people. Relationships are so important. And um, They're John everything in the art world. Been, yeah. They are. And, and he's doing very well in New York and he's very in, engaged in, in the art world in New York through the comic books and um, drawing live drawing sessions, et cetera. All those things that you can think of that a, an artist does these days. Mm -hmm. um, he and I have always kept in touch and I always admired the work that he did. And what I liked particularly about comics and comic strips and comic books is that you can tell a story very simply. Mm -hmm. And it's a way to engage with people very quickly. It's dramatic. message very quickly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And through illustrations. And it's something that I thought would appeal to people of that genre who already like that genre. And particularly younger people, younger adults. And I thought... If you thought it was great, I think it worked, right? Yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of something called, that came out of the U.K. called the Horrible Histories, which are little little comic books, little graphic novels about different periods in time. And they, they especially focus on the more gruesome or 
odd bits, but it, but it's but it is an entire history. So you know, it's um, the vile Victorians and the measly Middle Ages, and you know, anyway, I think it's a very good right. way of kind of um, condensing and drawing people in. And of course, I would like it as a visual artist. I I respond to visuals. Um, they help me remember right. and, and really see. Uh, see things well, well, it does help I with like memory yeah with john yes yeah, so what i liked about working with john is that we're able to go back and forth and i was able to give him information and give him context mm-hmm. and we basically had five panels on that eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that told the story of mary barnes accused waiting to be be hanged and uh you know I thought family there poignant, yeah and it was a great it was a great way to to um, send through social media, use on, uh, you know, various ways of just disseminating that. Because I used that as a link in an email blast that we did. Mm-hmm. So if you clicked on the email and you clicked on the, the link, you could download uh, a high-resolution copy of that mm-hmm. and print it out for yourself. So nice. it was a way of uh, distribution and publishing um, that we haven't done like that here before. Uh, not that we haven't, you know, did uh, online forums and whatnot, but you can actually download that. Right. And I thought it would, again, appeal to a certain certain group of people who would appreciate the, the art form of that comic strip. So, um, now, when you were talking about a memorial for those accused and hanged in Connecticut... Well, I thought that the gentleman who was speaking from the... Um the, yes, the Facebook that, that group. Yes, is Tony Grigo. Yeah. Tony Grigo of the Connecticut Memorial, um, uh, Connecticut Witch Memorial page on mm-hmm. Facebook. So so the, the interesting thing is, is that um, a few years ago, my first year starting here at Stanley Whitman House, I was asked to go down to Bridgeport, and they were doing a memorial unveiling of a stone with a plaque in it. It was quite substantial that would memorialize this woman, Goody Knapp, who was Mm -hmm. accused and hanged of witchcraft. And so I went down, and they contacted our museum to have the director come and and offer words because Stanley Whitman House had been recognized in the past as making a great contribution to the study and research of the Connecticut witchcraft trials. Mm -hmm. So I was new. I had no idea that there were witches here in Connecticut, I always think of Salem, Massachusetts. Sure, yeah. did a quick study, and I looked at our resources here, spoke to my predecessor, uh, Lisa Johnson, and, um, you know, prepared remarks. And, and thank goodness I only had to prepare remarks for about three or four minutes um, and, and represented our, our museum at that dedication of that memorial. So what was great... Andy? Did I just lose? Um, okay, well, I just part, lost part, you for a second there. There were there are a lot there are a lot of descendants that mm-hmm. were there. Oh, interesting. Goody Nap. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then there were also uh, a number of people from the community that are engaged in the research of the witchcraft trials. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a great way to connect with that. So I knew that we did things here in the past, and it had been a while. And um, I had, in, in, you know, as I go through files, I saw this this placard that said the Mary Barnes Society, and so it was, you know, something that caught my eye. And um, what I wanted to do was, um, you know, put some life back into that and um, try to do do what 
our goal was really to have a deeper understanding of the people and culture of that time. Mm-hmm. And because Mary Barnes was a Farmington woman and we're in Farmington mm-hmm. and she was executed, um, I thought that um, we should continue to do this. The other aside is is that I also oversee the Memento Moment in Farmington. Wait, say and that again because land. you just sort of broke up there. Say the name of it again. Sure. Thank you. So it's it's the Memento Mori Cemetery mm-hmm. in Farmington. It's the, it's our old graveyard, our ancient graveyard here. And it has a beautiful gate. Land. It has that beautiful Egyptian revival gate, a little bit yeah, like the one in New Haven. It was um, was inspired by Groves Cemetery mm-hmm. um, in New Haven. Yes, and so. Part of that land was owned by Thomas and Mary Barnes. Mary Barnes was the woman accused and hanged of witchcraft. So there's this connection to this property that I oversee where I also feel like we need to get this Mary Barnes Society going and make these connections and keep it keep it keep it live out front so that people remember that these kinds of um, activities happen these basically i would call them an atrocity you know, so, you know hanging people for for witchcraft is, but let me ask you something uh, i i was doing research for one of my own projects which was up at the new haven museum recently that had to do with the connecticut witch trials and and one of the cases that i read about was a widow who um she she was a landowner and they basically went after her and accused her of being a witch so that they could get her property um, is that true? Is that what happened yeah. with Mary Barnes? No, it, it's not. I think that the, the, there's nuances here that you, you, you really have to understand. Mm-hmm. We looked at the past a certain way, and mm-hmm. certain, certainly with biases and, and, and not really having a clear sense of the context. So you really have to approach this very, very soberly and, mm-hmm. and just look at the information that, that is there and then really put yourself in the context. So that's why I like having um, Virginia Woolf of Her Story Theater, mm-hmm. when she did her presentation and she was part of the panel, she was Mary Barnes and she did uh, one of her acts of her five-act play, um, which is basically a, a gallows soliloquy uh, that Mary Barnes gave the morning that she was sent to be hanged. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and it really goes through... But that a was a work of fiction that she she wrote? It, yes, and it's based on the it, facts, but she doesn't actually know what Mary Barnes. I mean, right, right. but but to to, to to just to to the point being is that she really looked at you know these, the Puritans had uh, a way of looking at things differently than we might look at things today, mm-hmm. very simply, right? Yeah, and these things aren't simple; these are complex. So I'm just kind of kind of giving you the the, the monarch notes here, mm-hmm. but if you look at the Puritans and how they looked at life, you have to really think that possibly Thomas Barnes didn't say anything because he himself might be accused of being a witch, which sometimes happened. Mm -hmm. And who would care for their four children? Right. right? So there might've been an understanding between Mary and Thomas not to have him step forward. And it might've been quite a dilemma for him. And, and, And it's quite tragic. Right. So in that's way, in the that's you know, in the graphic the novel. Mm-hmm. There are the Greek tragedies. Well, here are, here's our, here's our, our American tragedies in, in a sense, right? And you know, lynching is still very much with us. Yes. Think about that. Yes. And and so, well, when we're speaking about tragedies, also there are there were the uh, Native peoples in Farmington as well, 
And sure, sure. But, uh, just but to, to continue on with this very simple thing, mm -hmm. you know, we we still hear vocabulary, witch hunt, yeah. hoax. You know, we still hear these things that are, evoke uh, a, a long memory, yeah. right, of these things. And, and, and when you think about this, you know, you really can't approach these things very lightly. And that's what I like about how, uh, you know, Tony Grigo or Beth Caruso, who's the historical novelist, or uh, Virginia Woolf, you know, who's the actor, how they all approached what they do very thoughtfully. And they've been doing it for a very long time. And in the case of uh, uh, Virginia Woolf, um, she actually became aware of the Connecticut witch trials um, through the Stanley Whitman House and was able to, you know, leverage that uh, knowledge and, and research that was happening here and be part of that. And then it, she's a creative person. She was able to, to turn that around and make sense of it in her way, in, mm -hmm. in her interpretation through her art. So and talking about... You know, you know, just the tungsus, right? Yeah, I want to just interrupt you for just here. a minute before keep sure. that hold that thought because I just want to say that you were listening to WPKN eighty nine point five FM and streaming online at WPKN.org. And this show is live culture. I'm your host, Martha Willette Lewis. This is a monthly program about art and culture. And today I'm talking with Andres Versoza, who is the executive director of the Stanley Whitman House in Farmington, Connecticut. And it is a 300-year-old museum house. So, sorry to interrupt you there, and Andy, go on. Oh no, that's that's, that's actually quite all right. I just want to um, bring some context you know, I, back I, for our newer listeners. Sure, sure. I, I just have to say, you know, I, I get very excited about what I do, mm -hmm. and uh, which is you know, great. You got to be all in, and I think you know one of the, the the silver lining for me during this period of the coronavirus or the you know um, COVID-19, whatever you want to call this past year, which has been one heck of a year, um, the silver lining has simply been, um, I've been able to, to, to dive a little deeper mm -hmm. into things like the Connecticut witch trials and the Connecticut the witch panics. Yeah. And I've been able to look at, you know, particularly in this time, we're also thinking about um, the you know, Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. um, social moment, justice, right? real social justice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and really kind of looking at it thoughtfully and um, because, you know, it, it's right there in our faces. Most people are watching TV, listening to the radio or online. We're not gathering. We're not going out to places. We're not, you know, we're not gathering physically. So hopefully <laughs> they kind of lend themselves to being able to consider things a little deeper mm -hmm. i think if you if you choose to you can actually turn yourself off to those things too very easily by chasing other kind of things online but um you know one of the things about this moment is through the work that we do we actually have um research that's been done around slavery here at stanley Whitman house for several years preceding my being here and that's uh something that we do um, with our our interns, our students, with community folks, and like right now, we're looking at um, the Tungsis as well. They were the the indigenous peoples that were here before the settlers came about 400 years ago to Farmington. Yes. So, and they had quite a complex and sophisticated culture that was here long before the settlers were here, and uh, this for for thousands of years. 
Right. And so, you know, this has given me that opportunity to look at things. And because we're a history museum, and I'm kind of skipping forward very quickly to this, but um, there's a lot of things that were written, but they were written written by white people. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. So to 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 look at things differently now um, and think about, all right, what was written and can we te- take a step back from that and think about the, that in a different way and then think about what's going on now with Native peoples or people that were descended from slaves mm-hmm. or people that or are not white, right? So when you think about what's history now, how, do we, how would we interpret the past today through that vantage point, mm-hmm. which really gives you pause, right? Right. I read the the little bit that I read about the Tungsis, and it's not a whole lot. Um, it wasn't particularly good because they, they got moved around a couple of times location-wise, and they had originally been using the river quite a bit and had had obviously a lot more land, and the land kept that they were given kept getting smaller and smaller. But what was interesting to me in the little bit that I read uh, was the the fact that they had used the local court systems um, when they felt that aggrieved right. because somebody had, ta- had taken over even more of their land, individual homeowners had, had right. taken over their land. And I believe in, in all of the three cases, um, they lost the case each time. So They did or it wasn't heard. It didn't it would, progress. Right, or, right. So, so that, I thought so, that was interesting, the fact that they were using the, the local legal system to try and—, and um, adjudicate this sure so it's it, it's harder to do when you have people to actually keep pushing that forward like today there's no formal recognized tungsis um you know community here in far right they, the, the last Whereas people moved up to canada right? right they didn't move to canada no they they actually first moved over to Upstate. Massachusetts and uh-huh. New York, and then eventually they're part of what was called the Brotherton Movement, uh-huh. and they actually ended up in Wisconsin. Oh. Over the years, I know where I got um, Canada for from. various ceremonial reasons, mm-hmm. um, there'll be people from the Tungsis tribe or, or that community in Wisconsin that has, has come back to Farmington oh, nice. um, okay, for, for some things. but. But there's no, you know, I'm from Maine, as you know, mm-hmm. and um, in Maine, you know, um, I, you know, I, I'm familiar with several communities of which, one, I have a, a house um, just about a quarter mile from um, Sabayak, which is a Passamaquoddy Indian reservation in Perry, Maine. Mm-hmm. So that is actually a, a, a community that, you know, you actually see um, Passamaquoddy, right? And you, uh, or if you were to go to where I went to school at the University of Maine, um, there are the Penobscot, right? right? So it's a little harder here because you know I, I, there's no one that's I, that I've met or know of that is Tungsis, mm-hmm. right? So um, one of the things I wanted to do actually before we got too deep, and of course knowing how exciting it is to be on the radio to talk about the museum. We didn't get a chance to do it, but, you know, there is a land acknowledgement that sometimes I'll, you know, read, and that, and I've been doing this more and more, mm-hmm. um, that that I'd like to read okay. for you, and, it, and it's regarding the Tungsis. That'd so. be lovely. Okay. We at Stanley Whitman House acknowledge that we are situated in the homeland of the Tungsis people, who later invited the Mohegan, Wangunk, 
Quinnipiac, and other displaced Native people to join them here. Today, five nations, the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Shacticon, and Golden Hill Pagusset, and the descendants of other Native peoples, continue to serve as stewards of this land. With this acknowledgement, we recognize the legacies of settler colonialism and we signal ongoing commitment to building relationships with the indigenous communities who have lived on these ancestral lands almost 15,000 years and to the future nations. So that's a land acknowledgement that I like to read. Like there'll be a program for instance, I'm here at the museum at a symposium or a lecture or a talk, and I'll read that first, and then I'll go into the program. Mm -hmm. Or particularly if I'm up at our Memento Mori Cemetery and we're doing a gravestone cleaning workshop, I like to, to read that, and then I add some other information that I share. And one of them is, is that there are no tungsten buried here, and there's a reason for that, because the tungsten were actually had a burial ground uh, just uh, several hundred feet away down the hill and another cemetery that was built later, but where th there have been remains found um, of, of Tungsus burials or even earlier prehistoric, uh, pr you know, earlier peoples. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the other thing is that, um, you know, I talk about the, the Tungsus, um, when I was just speaking with a researcher who I met here this morning, who's still here researching downstairs, and just talk to her about where you might find evidence of Tungsus or even slaves here in Farmington in colonial, the colonial period and where to find them in, in materials. Um, and usually it's not like you can open a book and find it in the index. No, it's, it takes real historic sleuthing, deed. right? Yeah. Yeah, yes. And, and, there's, and we have a researcher here, a longtime researcher, who calls that information crumbs. And she mm -hmm. says you, you, you find the crumbs, you collect them, and then you find that you've collected a story. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, yes, you, and, so and you, I know that you do have a really beautiful library and collection, too, so we should talk about that, the fact that people... Can people come in and do research? Is the public invited, or is it's it hard to do at the moment? But right. like with this this person who's who's visiting now, and, and she's looking at um, a significant collection of letters um, that she's a descendant of, um, and she's writing a book. So you know, I will meet people and, and you know familiarize themselves with the protocols and the collection, and then mm -hmm. kind of set them set them up so they could do their research. Um, so one of the things um, we do is we'll, we'll take a request. If we can fulfill it, we will. Um, obviously, we depend on our volunteers right now to do some of that. And since a lot of them aren't coming in because they're of that cohort where they're older, and right. it's not safe it's for not them safe. necessarily to be here. So things have slowed down in that regard. Um, but I do have some people that are working on projects, and I've actually been encouraging people um, particularly artists like John Jennison or uh, several others that have been coming to the museum over the last three years um, to come and look at our collection, look at our historic house, look at the cemeteries, look at the village green, look at all the, the assets that we have that we are stewards of, and then also look at the man-built environment that we are in that was you know built on this um, you know, certainly in the colonial sense from the, 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 the settlers. Um, and, I, and I try to have them um, 
I kind of get them excited so that they can interpret that work or, or, or kind of work off of what they experience here into their work. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, say with John Jennison, you know, we, we shared information and he was able to create a comic strip for us. Um, I have a person here now who's doing um, work where she's creating an herbarium from um, herbariums that we have in our library mm-hmm. and from the living plants from our garden, which our garden has been here for many, many years. I want to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, you have too, wonderful gardens. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and so, so she's, she's going to build an herbarium in our welcome center. Then I have another person who's doing an installation of, um, you, you know, of these um, braided rugs. Well, she's mm-hmm. doing something where she's creating a braided rug that kind of takes over the spear classroom. Oh, and so I think it's so great things. that you're finding ways of, of getting contemporary artists involved in in the historic museum. I think that's a really, really wonderful way to go. And it makes sense because that's one of my, one of the things that I've done in the past is work with artists mm-hmm. as a, a gallerist and, and owning a gallery uh, in the past. So, and being on museum boards and engaged in, in all that. So it, it does make sense to leverage that. That's mm-hmm. one of the, the great things that I feel like I've been able to do. And it keeps um, things really dynamic. Yeah, it makes things really dynamic. I just want to interrupt you for just a second and say you are listening to WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming online at w, uh, WPKN.org. And this is Live Culture, a monthly program about art. I'm Martha Willette Lewis, and I'm talking with Andres Versoza, who is the executive director of the Stanley Whitman House in Farmington, Connecticut, which is a beautiful old house museum. And... Andy, can you give the website? Uh, you've just redone your website, so, so it, you kind of it's nice and clean and we easy did. to use. Yeah. So what is the website, so it's, please? It's a very simple um, URL or, or, or website uh, address. It's uh, S is in Sam dash W dot org. S dash W H dot org. Okay. So it's S dash. And you can see things like, um, you can see the graphic novel for Mary Barnes. Uh, You can see the the picture of the Memento More um, Cemetery Gate. Uh, There's all kinds, and of course, the house. And one of the interesting things about the House Museum is that the, the, you know, We've been talking a little bit about the collections, and I want to talk more about the collections, but I was wondering today about whether or not the the real museum is the structure itself, or is it the things inside? It's not. (laughs) So there's the 300-year-old structure, Mm -hmm. right? And then we have uh, an L, and on the second floor of the L is the admin center where we have our offices. Mm -hmm. The first floor of the L is basically a... a, Um, which is the Welcome Center, uh-huh. and it has a staircase down to the library. And then we have what's called um, the Spear Classroom in the Whitman Tavern, which is an annex that was built um, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, it's a it's a kind of like any New England structure added on to the back. And, mm-hmm. and uh, we're in a, on a quarter acre on High Street in the village, and um, we're close to Hillstead Museum and uh, Miss Porter's School, the Lewis Walpole Museum, which is part of Yale University. Mm-hmm. And we have the Farmington Historical Society here, which is dynamite. They've been in operation since the 1950s. 
We also have, um, for, for another museum here in Farmington, which is terrific, is the Unionville Museum, and that's in the Unionville section of Farmington. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm missing anything else. No, but no, but my question really things- had to do with whether or not you thought that the house itself, the structure, is the museum, or is it the things that, that is holding it? You know, like, so the, the, is it the objects inside? Because most of the, the most, the house itself is the oldest, like... The, the house itself is, I, I consider, an object in and of itself. Right. right? To me, the house is... And the, then we have... All- the things inside are nice, but the house is the, 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 the uh, structure of interest it's to me. It's first period, post-medieval. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really um, speaks to that, that early earlier time of, of people when they started coming to this country, particularly New England. And um, in, in the house, we have a furnishings plan where we try to show, you know, we have um, on permanent loan um, several items from the Wadsworth. Some of them are quite beautiful. Um, yeah, you have some beautiful right. things. Right, and, and we've had a lot of these items um, since we first were set up in 1935. And we were actually, in the beginning, Farmington Museum. Mm-hmm. And we were only uh, Stanley Whitman House. That name change happened uh, in the the late 70s, early 80s. So we do have uh, a considerable archive of several thousand items, and we have uh, a, you know, a permanent collection of, of things of the period. Um, over, the, over the years, they refined what was in the collection and try to keep it uh, to the colonial period of the, mm-hmm. the mid-1600s to about 1820 um, is basically what our, our, our collection is focused on. And, and sometimes and there'll be something outside of that. Yeah, and, and I wanted to talk a little bit about your gardens and the outside space because one of the things, I believe that the pandemic is going to be with us for a while, and with warmer weather, uh, it is perfectly possible to do outside events and you have a beautiful outside sure, so event, and you have this sort of really interesting cooking stuff that happens there. Sure, sure. So let me let me. I'll just get, give a, a quick overview, really quick. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, for for us, we have an artist intervention program, which I talked a little bit about. We have a food waste program as well um, that that we do, and it really talks about um, you know food was different then from now, and it was really influenced by their uh, Puritans' religious beliefs, their traditions. Um, it's influenced by the geography of this area, what grows here, the growing season, you know, um, all the different cooking methods, et cetera. So we have a, a gentleman named Dennis Picard. He's a historic uh, interpreter, and uh, we're lucky to have him. And we've developed uh, last year a program, a monthly program of um, focusing on food ways and and it could be hard cooking cooking o- over an open fire mm-hmm. preserving food um, what you grow in the garden uh, what could be foraged etc um, and then apart from the food ways program we have a music in the garden series it was the music in the tavern series when I first started here I started this program and it was to basically have um, a, a garden that's 17th century inspired. It's the plants and things that colonists would have brought over with them from England mm-hmm. because these were English uh, settlers. And then we have an 18th century garden in in our dooryard, and we have what's called the Dooryard Garden Society. Mm-hmm. And they're a group of volunteers that work through the year to plan and to, to steward our gardens here. And uh, we 
participate in Connecticut Open House Day in June. I think it's June 12th this year. Mm -hmm. And uh, Connecticut Historic Gardens Day, um, which is, I think, the 28th. And uh, what we do is we also do demonstrations and other things on other days, like Museum Day, et cetera, or we'll plan our own in-house kind of bee day or we'll have um, harvest day mm-hmm. uh, and, and we'll do demonstrations and um, guided tours of the gardens outside. So we've done a lot of that. And, that's great. Um, you know, and, and that's, we've kept our, our volunteers engaged with that. We, we kept a significant number of them coming back because we could social distance outside. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually starting next Saturday. We have um, a presenter from Connecticut Historic Gardens talking about the 15 member gardens throughout Connecticut to our group. And uh, Are you so going to do that outside? No, it's going to be a Zoom webinar. Oh, a Zoom so, webinar. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a lot of our meetings, you know, um, we, we really had to pivot. Like most of our board meetings and committee meetings are done online. Sure. Um, a lot of my um, working with people when I work on projects one-on-one, I do online. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so really in this moment, I mean, we're really trying to minimize contact. We do have a few researchers that come on Wednesdays to work on projects, but they're uh, they're physically spaced and everyone's masked up. We changed the HVAC system here in the museum. We had um, ultraviolet uh, lights put in, um, ionization um, units put in, and also um, filters, MERV-13 filters put in so that the air, as it goes through these uh, systems, are, you know, cleaned or, or, you know, cleaner than they would be if we didn't have them. And uh, But we still mask up. We still do physical sure. distancing. I work on one floor. Uh, my The advancement associate works up on the on the second floor. And then when the researchers are here, we have them in one of the bigger rooms and, um, and in the library. So, mm-hmm. um, And then if we have... We have brought in small groups um, since we've ch- improved the air at the end of the year last year, and uh, we've had a Girl Scout group in, but we rotate them in yeah. groups, we divide them, things like that. And we have a homeschool group that's planning on coming in, but we haven't had the return of field trips from schools yet, understandably. No, I don't and, see how uh, they can do that. Even the transport yeah, issue for for field trips is difficult, I think. Sure. It's it, it just logistically, in, yeah. in many ways, it's not going to work. And we, and we haven't been doing house tours, uh, per se, because, you know, we depend on our, our volunteer docents to right. get those, and they haven't been coming back yet. So, so um, yeah. although I've, I've given director tours to, um, you know, to people on occasion, so, um, but we, we're, we're generally, we're, we're closed for, you know, regular tours where people just come but by. But you still do have but, um, electronic events and, and things that, that people can mine oh God, out yeah. of your website. So I was lucky enough sure, to yeah. get a docent tour um, of the house, yeah. and the house is quite quite beautiful, and there's some really interesting things, including the weaving room, which is upstairs where there's the most light. Um, one of the original occupants of the house was a professional weaver. And then the... Smith. Yes. And the other thing that was quite striking to me was the kitchen. I love kitchens. And this one is a beautiful wood-clad kitchen with an enormous hearth. But I was thinking about it. Um, there's no insulation. The wood that I was seeing is the same as the wood pretty much on the outside of the house. Maybe there's like one more layer. And on a day like today, it must have been really, really cold in there. 
They, they may have brought in the, the smaller animals. Uh-huh. Right? Really? And, and they would have brought them into the to the hall or to the kitchen, mm-hmm. right? That must have been and, messy um, and loud. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, a sense of um, what they thought was messy and hygienic would be different, yeah. right, from Good what point. we would think. Good point. Um, but, but think about, you know, what these settlers were confronted with. And, and certainly what the Tungsons were confronted with, with the English here, the Europeans here, there were different epidemics and illnesses that would ravage communities, right? And um, and so when we think about that in the context of, say, for instance, um, the witchcraft trials, you know, there's a lot that was going on and people thought God was angry with them Mm -hmm. or uh, the devil was at work, you know, and and both simultaneously. Right. And, um, And the evidence of that was, you know, a smallpox epidemic or the failure of their crops. Or you know a, a raid by a warring tribe um, on on a settlement, and uh, or hearing of that somewhere. So mm-hmm. you know the the there's a lot of fear. There, right, right. I mean the the way that they thought about the the um, the environment here was to to to, uh, to tame it. Right, mm-hmm. they called right. it the wilderness. The wilderness, right, right. Um, right. It's right? not nature; so it's the wilderness. Right. Think about about it from the Tungsten's perspective. This was, you know, they understood everything. Right. You it's know, their they, environment. It was all in balance. Right. It was all in balance. And, and then you have this, you know, the, the settlers coming in. Well, and what the so Tungsten's must have thought about the settlers bringing in, you know, diseases, too. That must have been terrifying for them oh, as well, right? I mean. Yeah. I think earlier contacts with Europeans actually probably did uh, a lot, uh, you know, probably decimated the population. Yeah. Um, you know, I, don't, I can't give you particulars, but this is, you know, what I've um, been aware of. So, right, me too. Um, yeah. You know, so the, the house, ba- back to the house, the house has also, one of the things is you realize how big the trees must have been around there because the floorboards on the house are these huge, right. wide, wonderful things. And I assume that they were, the building was mostly built out of, you know, things carefully oh. selected locally, but locally, right? Absolutely. And and when you think about what was here and then what disappeared over the, the first century or two here in New England, mm-hmm. um, you know, most of New England was pretty much denuded of forest right. after a fashion, right? Um, so, you know, our house here was is primarily built of oak. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the, you know, in the 1980s, there was um, a restoration that took place where they pretty much took down a lot of the house inside and all the modifications and alterations that had happened over the years. And through Abbott Lowell Cummings and other experts, um, Abbott Lowell Cummings was at Yale uh, School of Architecture, and um, um, what would be the Historic New England, which was the NIA, uh, Society for the Preservation of New England, um, they you know, reconstructed the house, and what was missing, they built and made or fashioned um, in the authentic way. So With hand tools and, and right. no nails. So like much of the paneling that you see today in the house um, is, is really not that old. It's not original to the house, but it was made from pieces of paneling that remained in the house that they were able to 
uh, and forensically they were able to go through the house and you know determine what was what mm-hmm. and um, in, in other houses from this period. They used to think that this house was built in 1660. Mm-hmm. And obviously in 1960, they had their tricentenary celebration. But they determined in the 1980s that the house was actually built through what was here, what remained, and through historical record that it was actually built in 1720. Okay. So that's why... That's uh, a bit of a blow. We, we, it, well, to, to those who... Who, <laughs> who were attached you know, to the I, idea I kinda, that it was already... <laughs> Right. Well, for those that that are really invested in, like, oh, this is the oldest house, and mm-hmm. you know, have that sense of propriety and pride, yes, it must have been a blow. <clears throat> but you know, if you, you really want to get history right, you do, and uh, I and think, you have to keep you know, look, taking a good hard look, and you have to keep picking away at it. Um, exactly. So, yeah. so being able to to you know, celebrating three hundred years just a, a month ago. Um, for our historic house is, is uh, just w- well by me, and I'm, I'm happy to to continue to do the work that we do here. Um, whether we were built in nine, whether we were built in 1660 or 1720. Well, I uh, love the I love the kind of dynamic breadth of what you're doing. Can you just list some things that are coming up? Do you have anything that's particularly fun coming up? Sure. That people might so we have to a, attend a, a, or what, what I call a public day where we invite the public. No, it's a no fee. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called um, Maple Day, and it's, it celebrates the history of maple sugaring here in New England and, and throughout the, the Northeast, basically. And we have maple trees that we tap, and we evaporate the sap. We demonstrate how to do that. We don't make maple syrup here to sell and distribute, and we actually don't get too far because it's a too short a period. But we Right. Just it takes through. a long time, doesn't it? <laughs> It like, does, and, and, and yeah. uh, but we basically we show how we you know you you tap the trees, how you start to evaporate it. We do it outside, and then again we have Dennis Picard here, and he talks about when uh, the Tungsis or other indigenous peoples may have done the same thing and how they would have done it. That's fascinating. And then he talks about yeah, right. And then he talks about the colonists and how they did it and how they they you know got into the production of it. And where they were so into creating uh, maple syrup and, and, and whatnot that it was one of the different sweeteners that um, uh, people were making here. There's cane sugar, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, there's honey uh, production that was happening here. But um, I believe it was Benjamin Franklin who was trying to champion uh, maple syrup or maple sugar being the sweetener of the of, of the Americans of the new world um, right over over cane sugar well, and over I'm with um, him on honey. that I think maple syrup is one of the most delicious things and I'm not that much Love of it a, in my coffee yeah I'm not that much of a sugar hound but maple syrup is just un, 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 unmistakably delicious I think it's wonderful stuff so here's the sobering news about small museums yeah right? let's hear it so because of the because of the cares act Mm-hmm. You know, our museum was able to apply and receive a PPP loan, right? Good. Also, we've applied for a second and recently just got it. Our first one was forgiven. It became a grant. Good. We were able to, through the Connecticut Humanities, we received a $5,000 grant last summer, mm-hmm. which helped me kickstart my programs because I had no money in the budget for it. Right. We also got $1,000 from the State Historic Preservation Office but still, these are not great cost of utilities. Yeah, this is great, so, but that those are not huge quantities. 
They're not, but for us it is. Right. It's, no, no. It's, I mean, it's, I'm not denigrating it. I'm just saying that, that you know, I'm sure, I'm sure well, you'd like more. Being, the, Martha, it's, it's really simply this. You know, th- that kind of replaces uh, revenue that would have come through um, house tours, mm-hmm. program tours, right? Um, through fundraising. You know, our right. biggest fundraiser where we raise about $30,000, we couldn't do. So that, that CARES Act funding helps us just to, to stay open and to keep the house going and preserve the house and, and do all the stewardship, right? So we're going to be looking at what happens in the rest of 2021 and into 2022. We know that the coronavirus is, is not, it hasn't been contained. You know, we, no, there's yeah. a long way to go. So we depend so much on private donations. And we just finished our annual fund campaign. Mm-hmm. And um, we, you know, this is for basically calendar year uh, 2020. And it just wrapped up this month. And we did fairly well. But, you know, people forget if they don't do or they don't engage or they don't, you're not yeah. out in front. It's a, it's a huge problem. Every small arts organization that I'm involved with, and there are many, um, are facing really similar problems. And, and I kind of hope that listeners out there are paying attention to how much uh, these organizations mean to them because it's, 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 this is a crucial time right now. With Stanley Women House, right, being mm-hmm. on the radio with you today and being able to share about what we do here and who we are, I just want to thank you because this is a rare opportunity. And if there oh, are it's been fun. Are out there, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, if you have any questions, you know, email us through the website. Well, that's you know, that's the thing. I think you there. sound really approachable, and and I I hope that listeners will look at the website. I'm going to have you give the the uh, call the eight, the website web address for the url thank you (laughs) fishing for that Mm -hmm. word and um you can give out the phone number if you want as well but uh, you know i would i would invite listeners to if they feel so moved take a look at the website because i liked it because it's it's image rich you've got some really nice um images there so it's fun to look at and it's a work in progress Mm -hmm. you know all, all everything that we're doing just feels like a work in progress as we try to meet the moment. So yeah. for, for people Meeting who want moment. to visit us online, you could simply go to s-wh.org, and that's s-wh.org. And there's different ways of um, learning about the museum, our programs, who we are, what we steward, and how to support us by becoming a, vo- a volunteer or making a contribution. Um, there, there are a lot of... You know, we use our website as a portal for a lot of, uh, of our information that the public might want to know. Mm-hmm. We also have a Facebook page. Um, you can easily um, you know, search for that on Facebook. And um, we, we, have, we do a lot of our ticketing through Eventbrite, yeah. which is eventbrite.com. And we have a YouTube channel for the museum. So if you put Stanley-Whitman in, you'll actually find our museum channel. And we'll have, for example, the Christmas tour mm-hmm. um, videos. We have 11 of those that we did in December. We have the four presentations we did for the symposium on New Year's Eve. And we have the recent four videos for the Mary Barnes Society. And well, then we will have to look forward to 
We'll have information about Maple Day, which mm-hmm. is the end of February. We'll have all our, the rest of our public days through the year. We have listed all of our foodway programs through the year. Great. All of our gravestone cleaning um, workshops through the year, mm-hmm. which we do with Ruth Brown, uh, Ruth so- Shapley Brown, who's the president of the Connecticut Gravestone Network. And she, she actually Andy. does the, the workshops for us. That is fantastic. Um, We're then- sort of running out of time here. Um, so sure. I, I just want to thank you so much for being a guest on Live Culture and to tell listeners that Live Culture airs the final Saturday of the month, each month. So it's a monthly show about art and culture. And we have people like Andres Versoza, the executive director of the Stanley Whitman House in Farmington, um, on the show live and that arts organizations and small institutions like this really need you right now. Andy, I want to thank you so much for being on Live Culture. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Martha. I really appreciate you having me on. It was great. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. Take care. Peaceful and fair I'd be so happy If I were there No matter where I chance to be Connecticut is the place for me Miss every lake Miss every hill Even in dreams I think of them still And when you see them You'll agree Connecticut is the place to be. Village green and childhood scenes are things that I remember, yes. Land of dreams and moonlit streams, how close to heaven can you get? Nights full of stars, hearts full of joy. Paradise for a girl and a boy. Yes, it suits me to a tee. Connecticut is the place for me to be. Connecticut is the place for me. Hi, I'm Francesca Riemann, host of Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres. This week, we talk with Paul Pitkoff about his memoir, Cold War Secrets. It's about growing up in left-wing circles in New York City in the 1950s and 60s with a father who had a hidden past. Then, a woman is raped and finds a path toward healing by examining the objects associated with her trauma. We talk with Laura Levitt about her memoir, The Objects That Remain. Tune in Monday night at 10 p.m. for Writer's Voice. Our new home is under construction. WPKN's new studios in downtown Bridgeport are being renovated so we can move in this June. But what we really need to move is you. You can always help with our project by donating to nonprofit WPKN on our website. Just look for the little red moving truck. But we're also seeking in-kind donations of painting, carpentry, electrical and mechanical engineering, 
flooring and carpeting, moving services, corrugated boxes, office furniture, and signage. If you want to help build our home, please contact WPKN's General Manager, Steve DiCostanzo, by email at gm at wpkn.org. Thanks. Hello there. This is Marianne Sahalka. One of the many volunteers here at WPKN helping to keep you informed and connected through great music, news, arts, and public affairs programming. One of the things I love most about WPKN is the incredibly dedicated core of volunteers who are truly the soul of this place. Would you consider joining us and supporting this essential community resource by becoming a monthly donor? Any amount helps. But for a minimum of $15 a month, you can choose a subscription to either the New York Times or the Washington Post. A great way to support trusted voices of truth when we need them the most. We know you always support us when you can, so if you're able to now, please go to WPKN.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe. Adults and people of any age with underlying medical conditions are at higher risk for severe illness from COVID-19. The good news is there are steps you can take to protect yourself and your loved ones. Step one, keep germs away. Wash your hands often. Stay home unless you need food, medicine, or medical care. If you need to go out, stay at least six feet or two arms length apart from others. Avoid people who are sick. And remember, wear a cloth face covering when around others. Step two, make a plan. Identify and talk with someone who can help care for you if you get sick. Have supplies such as medicines and groceries on hand or find ways to have them brought to you. Step three, keep up with the situation and health recommendations in your area. If COVID-19 is spreading in your community, stay home as much as possible and avoid crowds. If you do get sick with fever, cough, or shortness of breath, call your doctor right away. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Danbury Animal Welfare Society is a no-kill animal shelter that has been making a difference in the lives of animals since 1974. We promote responsible pet guardianship and the humane treatment of animals, and we work toward ending animal overpopulation through our spay and neuter services and a variety of educational and community outreach programs. If you're looking to add a new furry friend to your family, we'd be happy to help. Stop by our shelter during our open house hours to visit with our adorable adoptable animals. Danbury Animal Welfare Society is located at 147 Grassy Plain Street in Bethel, Connecticut. To learn more about us, visit our website at Dawes.org. That's D-A-W-S dot org. Hello, this is Martha Willette Lewis. I am the host of the Flux Capacitor, and I play a time-traveling mix of music for you every other Thursday from 10 till 12 noon. And of course, you were tuned to WPK in Bridgeport, 89.5 on the FM dial. We are independent community radio broadcasting live from the campus of the University of Bridgeport. You can also catch us on the internets at WPKN.org. Thanks for listening.